Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Wednesday, April 7th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. A look at back when social media happened over the phone. Have physicists found a new force of nature? And the long-lost Lord of the Rings made-for-TV movie produced by Soviet Russia. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. I'm sure you've had this thought sometime in the past year. What if the pandemic had happened before we had such widespread access to and applications for the internet, before video conferencing for work and keeping in touch with people, before social media as a means of both information and communication with people beyond our own pod? I actually think that parts of it would have been pretty similar, if a bit more clunky. You know, conference calls over the phone have been a thing for decades, and during various outbreaks in the 20th century, like the 1937 polio outbreak in Chicago, school districts used to broadcast lessons over the radio so that students could learn at home. So while the technology that we develop is always new and often more convenient or expansive, the needs or desires we're working to fulfill usually stay the same. Which is one reason I'm endlessly fascinated by the creative uses of pre-home internet phone technology, both sanctioned and not. OneZero recently reopened the vault on a particular phone trend from the 70s that feels extra resonant today. Quoting OneZero, In the 60s and 70s, before digital systems took over the task of routing calls, even telephone operators whose job it was to route calls to the correct destination regularly called other telephone operators for help daisy-chaining connections from coast to coast. Such a vast network was bound to be riddled with busy signals, broken recordings, and vulnerabilities. But these failings also created empty spaces in the network, spaces where people could gather. Take busy signals. In certain parts of the country in the early 1960s, if you phoned someone and got a busy signal, your call was actually shunted to a busy line shared by all callers. If you were loud enough, anyone else who happened to be getting a busy signal in that moment could hear you yelling between the beeps. As inconvenient as that was, people started calling busy numbers just to talk to one another. The most enthusiastic among them discovered that certain wrong number recordings functioned in much the same way and began calling them just to hang out in the crosstalk, end quote. And people started discovering test lines used internally by telephone companies, which they, occasionally dubbed phone freaks, with a PH like fat, would use these loop-arounds to call each other for free from anywhere. This became like a free version of conference calling, or as the One Zero article likes to say, the original clubhouse. And while there were a lot of people with deep telephonic knowledge putting a lot of work into finding and optimizing these loop-arounds, a lot of the culture was also just people messing around or stumbling into it. Quoting again, Loop-arounds became popular nationwide, in part because they were shared between blind kids at summer camp. The Atlanta radio station call-in number was a fluke proliferated by local teens. In New York City, an entire party-line subculture emerged after it was discovered that New York Telephone, the Bell subsidiary that served all five boroughs, left the intercept lines of its Centrex service, a centralized phone system it provided to businesses in the city, wide open, end quote. But there were also those who found and curated these lines intentionally. The phone freaks often had their own phone-themed aliases, like Brian W. Feedback, Stephen Z. Bloop Line, and Regina Watts Towers. 
And though I don't know if he ever had a clever alias, Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak had his own joke line back in the day. And similar to lines that would read you a prayer or help you find a date, the joke lines were really popular in the 70s. According to 1-0, for a brief period, the most frequently dialed residential phone number in the entire world was one such comedy line. Run from an answering machine in someone's closet in West LA, the line was basically audio comedy sketches produced by phone freaks and local jokesters. They'd welcome you to the line, and then you'd just listen to a lineup of random sketches, some better than others. A man by the phone freak alias of Evan Doorbell has a whole YouTube channel sharing recordings from these phone lines and explaining the often forgotten subculture around them. He shared the reflections from one man who says he became obsessed with hanging out on a certain party line trying to meet girls, staying up all night on the line. He compares it to people being hooked on computers, or a more contemporary example, social media. And a lot of these lines were a lot like social media, really. You had a lot of mostly strangers, fairly anonymized, talking about whatever, without too many consequences. Some awesome and beautiful things came out of it, but there was also a lot of trolling and disruption. A few lines even started implementing moderators who could boot out trolls. But like every technology that has an early bloom of pure creative energy, it was soon tamped down by phone companies patching the holes in the network, going electric to replace human operators, and offering their own conference lines and dial entertainment services for a fee. A lot of the innovators who created, curated, and moderated the conference lines pivoted to other emerging technologies, some of them becoming the original hackers. But as much as platforms like Clubhouse and products like Twitter Spaces are trying to tap into this older form of communication, some say they'll never replicate what was actually great about those conference lines, which were far more anarchic and free. Often part of the point was ripping off and tricking the companies that ran them, not being a part of what the companies were selling. Evan Doorbell says bluntly, quote, The main difference is that in the 70s, people were having fun with these things. End quote. And 1-0 concludes, quote, The recent popularity of audio-based messaging apps may feel nostalgic, in part because they emulate an older form of communication, audio and its attendant ephemerality, but they're a far cry in spirit from their predecessors. We can only hope that somewhere far from the polished facades of social media deep in the glitches in the broken in-between spaces of the web, a new generation of freaks is on the line. And I hope they're having fun. I'll be waiting by the telephone until they call. End quote. And here, if I could afford the rights to it, is where I'd play you out with blondies hanging on the telephone. So just imagine that in your head. There are four fundamental forces in nature. Gravity, electromagnetism, the strong force, and the weak force. But could there be a fifth one? Physicists at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, or Fermilab, in Illinois have gathered evidence that muons, tiny subatomic particles, are disobeying the known laws of physics. Quoting the BBC, There are building blocks of our world that are even smaller than the atom. Some of these subatomic particles are made up of even smaller constituents, while others can't be broken down into anything else. Fundamental particles. The muon is one of those fundamental particles. It's similar to the electron, but more than 200 times heavier. 
The muon G-2 experiment involves sending the particles around a 14-meter ring, and then applying a magnetic field. Under the current laws of physics, encoded in a theory known as the standard model, this should make the muons wobble at a certain rate. Instead, the scientists found that muons wobbled at a faster rate than expected, and they say this might be caused by a force of nature that's completely new to science. End quote. Their findings, however, fall just shy of the threshold needed to claim this as a discovery and not a mere statistical fluke. That threshold is 5 sigma, but the muon G-2 experiment currently sits at just 4.1 sigma. Interestingly, this experiment is a follow-up of sorts to another one conducted at the Brookhaven National Laboratory in 2001, which found a similar discrepancy, but fell even farther short of the 5 sigma threshold. And this recent experiment is in, quote, excellent agreement with the findings from the 2001 experiment, giving great credence to both. Professor Mark Lancaster, who is a UK lead for the experiment, told BBC News, quote, Clearly, this is very exciting because it potentially points to a future with new laws of physics, new particles, and a new force which we have not seen to date. And Professor Ben Allenack from Cambridge University, who was not involved with the latest effort, said, My spidey sense is tingling and telling me that this is going to be real, end quote. Professor Alanak also has some name suggestions for the possible fifth force, including the third family hyperforce, B-L2, and my personal favorite, Flavor Force. However, Quantum Magazine points out that another recent finding pours a bit of cold water on this whole not-yet-discovery. In a paper coincidentally published today in the journal Nature, a team of theorists recalculated the standard model prediction of the muon's magnetic moment, meaning that the measured wobbliness by the Fermilab team is actually exactly what the standard model predicts. Quoting Quanta, the team of theorists known as BMW calculates this term to be considerably larger than the value adopted last year by the consortium, a group known as the Theory Initiative. BMW's larger term leads to a larger overall predicted value of the muon's magnetic moment, bringing the prediction in line with the measurements. If the new calculation is correct, then physicists have spent 20 years chasing a ghost. But the Theory Initiative's prediction relied on a different calculational approach that has been honed over decades, and it could well be right. In that case, Fermilab's new measurement constitutes the most exciting result in particle physics in years. End quote. And as Quantum points out, quote, researchers emphasize that even if BMW is right, the puzzling gulf between the two calculations could itself point to new physics. End quote. And that's kind of the bigger picture here. Something is happening, and what that something is could answer a lot of big mysteries about the universe, such as why the universe seems to be expanding at an increasingly rapid rate. Quoting the New York Times, The muon anomaly, physicists said, has now given them new ideas for how to search for new particles. Dr. Gordon Kerniak of Fermilab said the G-2 result could set the agenda for particle physics for the next generation. If the central value of the observed anomaly stays fixed, the new particles can't hide forever, he said. We will learn a great deal more about fundamental physics going forward. End quote. We've all got our opinions on the Lord of the Rings adaptations. Perhaps you prefer the 1977 Rankin and Bass animation to the 2010's feature film trilogy. 
Well, let me add a new one for your consideration. The 1991 Leningrad television made-for-TV adaptation of The Fellowship of the Ring. Yes, Soviet Russia produced a film of the first installment of The Lord of the Rings, and while it had been thought to be lost to time, it was just recently uploaded to YouTube by the modern-day version of Leningrad TV, the network 5TV. Russian fans who saw the movie when they were younger are delighted to be reunited with it, perhaps relieved that it wasn't another case of the Mandela effect, like that Shazam movie with Sinbad. And the rest of us are just delighted to see this masterpiece that The Verge describes as, quote, like found footage from a hobbit's camcorder. The Guardian doesn't pull punches either, writing, quote, The low-budget film appears ripped from another age. The costumes and sets are rudimentary, the special effects are ludicrous, and many of the scenes look more like a theater production than a feature-length film. The score, composed by Andrei Romanov of the rock band Akvarium, also lends a distinctly Soviet ambiance to the production, end quote. They're on to something with that theater production comparison. It has real community theater vibes. And the special effects, well, uh, yeah. When Gandalf creates fireworks, the screen literally cuts to crudely drawn static cartoons of fireworks. It's incredible. Now, there is one thing that this adaptation absolutely has over the Peter Jackson version, however. Tom Bombadil is included in all his carousing glory. If the absolutely ridiculous special effects didn't do it, the inclusion of Tom Bombadil has completely won me over. And honestly, I think the Russians really know what they're doing with The Lord of the Rings. They also have a sort of wizard people, dear reader version of the Peter Jackson films, with dubbing done by a translator known as Goblin that adds all kinds of absurdity and a healthy dose of expletives to the movies. But as for the 1991 Leningrad TV adaptation, The Verge notes, quote, Rather than the epic Hollywood fantasy captured so well by Peter Jackson, this adaptation feels like a weird fairy tale told by a pipe-smoking madman in the woods. In other words, it captures a completely legitimate aspect of The Lord of the Rings, just not one we're necessarily used to." End quote. The whole thing is almost two hours long, and there aren't any English subtitles, so if you just want the highlights, The Verge has an outline with jump links to all the best bits, link in the show notes. So there's a new documentary that's hot off the festival circuit and recently hit on-demand streaming. It's called The Emoji Story. Now, it looks like a very fascinating watch if you are someone who doesn't know anything about how emojis get approved. If you are familiar with that process, however, I think it's not quite as groundbreaking as the trailer tries to make it seem. However, the film does follow a number of people who were pushing for new emojis that represent various diverse identities and movements, which is an interesting narrative arc, and it looks like it's presenting an intriguing critique of Unicode as an institution, and of the idea of language and emojis' global persistence overall. So I might check it out after I finish watching the Soviet Lord of the Rings, and link in the show notes if you want to check it out as well. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.